welcome to The Week Ahead in Russia, RFERL's Monday podcast about significant developments and upcoming events in Moscow and beyond. Um, I'm Steve Gutterman, and my guest this week is Ian Garner, uh, an expert on Russian war propaganda. Uh, Ian's forthcoming book, Stalingrad Lives, explores how Soviet propagandists created a myth of the Battle of Stalingrad that has captured Soviet and Russian minds for 80 years now. And he is working on his second book about fascism and the future of Russia. So thanks again uh, for joining me today, Ian. Thank you for having me. All right, it's great to have you. And uh, given your expertise, I'm particularly glad that you could be my guest today, May 9th, which, of course, is the biggest day of the year uh, in terms of Russian war propaganda. Uh, now, you're joining us from Toronto, I believe it's morning there. But over here in, in Ukraine and in Moscow, it's afternoon. Uh, and uh, Russia's war, war on Ukraine continues. People are suffering and dying uh, every day, um, as they have been for 75 days now. Uh, and most of the victory of, uh, I'm sorry, most of the Victory Day events in Russia are over, uh, including the now customary military parade in Red Square uh, and Putin's address there. Uh, because of the war, today's parade and, and especially uh, Putin's address were watched, I would say, far more closely or at least by a much larger audience than they have been um, at times in the past with governments and people in Russia and Ukraine and the West and elsewhere uh, looking for direct statements today or indications of Russia's next steps in this unprovoked war. There had been talk uh, beforehand, a lot of talk about whether Putin might announce a general mobilization uh, or maybe formally declare war on Ukraine. So far, the Kremlin insists on calling this a special military operation and in fact insists uh, that Russian citizens call it that as well, or face prosecution uh, if they call it a war or, or an invasion or something else. Um, or there was also speculation he might declare kind of a victory of sorts, uh, despite the lack of evidence of a victory for Russia on the ground in Ukraine at this point. Um, but none of those things happened. Uh, I mean, the day is not out, um, but in his Red Square speech, at least, Putin made no such declaration, I'm sorry, declarations. Uh, the way I see it, he seemed mainly to be repeating uh, existing Russian narratives uh, that he has used before to try to justify uh, the invasion. Um, Ian, what, what's your main takeaway, or, or I guess your main takeaways from Putin's speech and, and from the ceremonies we've seen today? I think overall, Stephen, you're right that this seemed like a steady-as-she-goes kind of a speech. There was nothing new announced. I don't think there was anything new even hinted at, even if you were really trying to read between the lines. I don't think there's, there was anything in there to understand anything more about what's going on with the war today. But it was, it was in a sense, an interesting speech in... Firstly, and how closely Putin stuck to the, the rehearsed lines and wheeled out the greatest hits. And I, I, I don't think that's necessarily surprising, given that the propaganda apparatus as a, as a whole has continually come back to the same motifs 
over the last two months around the war, but also over the last eight years since the invasion of Crimea, and I guess the last 20 years since Putin started building up this cult of the war in Russia, which was, if not abandoned, then uh, relinquished in the 1990s. And there was a lot of material in that speech that may not have made much sense to Western onlookers, references to Russian patriotic heroes of the past, of these sort of uh, great, great leaders from the medieval era and the Tsarist era. And of course, what I got from that was this sense that history is kind of being compressed in Russia. And I've, I've written elsewhere. And if you want to have a look, I wrote an article for the Globe and Mail Canada's newspaper yesterday about the religious aspects of the battle and time is being compressed into this kind of spiritual time where the czarist past, the medieval past, the World War II past and the present are all kind of squished together and become indistinguishable and this really resembles more of a sort of spiritual understanding of time and the present and the future than something that's logical and rational. Perhaps that goes some way towards explaining why Putin is doing what he's doing today. And that is, it's not really based on any kind of rational risk-reward calculation as we seem to be looking for, rather than this is a sort of messianic almost a crusade to supposedly save Russia. And we saw he really hammered those messages about saving Russia and the threats from abroad and this being a, a defensive war that if we don't attack them first, then they'll, they'll attack us. And indeed, we saw the return of uh, the idea that Ukraine has been building or wants to build nuclear weapons, which is something that was floated in the propaganda in the first couple of weeks of the war, but seemed to seem to have receded in importance in recent weeks. The other thing that I want to pick out from this is the discussion that keeps happening in the West is how can, how can Putin sell this war when so many people are dying? Won't that start to tell? Well, I, I think, yes, at some point it will start to tell on popularity for the war. At, you know, at some point people will notice, where have all the kids gone? Where's my son? But he spent a good I'm going to guess half of the speech, and Stephen, you can correct me if I'm wrong on that, talking about the present and talking about sacrifices in the present, talking about what he's going to do for soldiers and their families when soldiers die. And, of course, we've seen in the parades the carrying of these kind of placards showing pictures of the soldiers who've died more recently, as well as the soldiers who've died in the past. So there's a lot going on there. And at the same time as talking to domestic audiences, Putin was clearly trying to address international audiences. And I don't know if anyone caught this, but there was a wonderful little moment where he was talking about, well, we, we want to celebrate the, the wartime sacrifices that were made by the Soviet Union, and of course, in particular by Russians, who he always singles out as being the most important contributors to victory. But we also want to recognize the sacrifices made by American troops and British troops, because American Britain is forgetting its past, whereas Russia supposedly isn't. And then I think he realized that he'd forgotten to mention Chinese troops. And so he threw in a line. And of course, of course, the Chinese too. 
and he almost sounded a little flustered, which is quite surprising for Putin, who's usually this very sort of placid speaker. So there's a little sense that he's he's talking to the world, he's talking to his Chinese allies or potential allies as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, another thing I noticed about his mention, his uh, what he said about uh, Western countries and their contributions, he he claimed uh, that. American veterans of World War II had wanted to um, to participate in the parade and were not allowed to. He, he implied that they were not allowed to by the government. So presumably he's found some uh, way to, to, to say that. Um, but it seemed like a particularly strange way to me to, to kind of uh, make an acknowledgement of the, of the Western, the Western contribution to the victory, but also uh, take a, a, a dig. And of course, I mean, I, I think, you know, I've seen a bunch of the, a lot of these speeches and a lot of these parades. And I think, you know, in the past, even, you know, before this year, and, and even sometimes before 2014, he had sometimes suggested, well, there's a new threat, um, and kind of suggested that it's the US um, that's, that is now out to dominate the world uh, in the way that, that uh, Hitler's Germany was. Um, but I found fascinating what you said about the kind of the way everything was squeezed or uh, squelched together, the, the long periods of history. Um, and then I guess trying to link it to link that all the you know, imperial era, Soviet era, and before the Tsarist era, you know, and, and going back even to Muscovy, I guess. Um, but and, and now trying to trying to link that to the war in Ukraine. Um, you know, and, and you mentioned it's kind of a hint or a clue that, you know, maybe this isn't really um, that rational, but it, it's kind of a messianic thing, uh, him trying to, um, you know, make his stamp and, and uh, uh, really make his mark, I guess, in history. And, and, and um, but, but, but it's sort of additional evidence of what people were saying you know, right before and right after the invasion began that, look, you know, I, I really didn't expect him to do this because it goes against the Russian national interest. Um, uh, so what, you know, why is he doing it? And I guess, you know, as you, as you mentioned, that that's kind of a clue there that he's, that he's doing it for his own, uh, for his own reasons. Um, so that's, uh, yeah, I, you know, I think that's a very good point. Um, and, um, I mean, I guess this, the second question I'd, li I'd like to ask uh, is more about how Russians um, have been reacting to the propaganda about the Ukraine war that Putin and his government and the state media have been putting out uh, and how they may react or maybe reacting to what's been said today. I mean, you mentioned that it was, um, you know, there were elements there um, for for foreign consumption, and also he was speaking definitely to, you know, to Russians. Um, now, one thing that was kind of, I thought, a main theme, and, and that he's tried to make a main theme during the invasion and the war, um, is that his, his suggestion that Russia's war against Ukraine echoes the fight against Hitler's Germany in World War II. Uh, now, outside Russia, that assertion has been widely dismissed as absurd and deeply disingenuous. 
Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky in his own address uh, kind of turned Putin's argument on its back, likening the allies, the, the allies, World War II allies fight against Hitler with his nation's struggle, in other words, Ukraine's struggle, uh, to repel Russia's aggression. Um, and so it's sort of like Ukraine saying, well, no, we're the ones fighting, uh, fighting um, an un unfounded, sort of unprovoked, you know, fascist-style aggression. And then um, today, British Defense uh, Minister Ben Wallace said that uh, th through the invasion of Ukraine, quote, Putin and his inner circle of generals are now mirroring the fascism and tyranny of 77 years ago, um, referring obviously uh, to 1945. Um, but what about the audience at home, Ian? Are, are Russians buying what Putin is saying? We're really in a difficult position when we, when we try to understand what Russians are buying and what Russians are not buying. And so the first thing I would say is take any opinion polls of any sort that you see with a huge pinch of salt. It's really hard to conduct this sort of opinion polling. And if you're interested, then go and, go and seek out Jeremy Morris here, who is a scholar of, um, sort of Russian anthropology, sociology in uh, Aarhus in Denmark. And he has a great blog post. He has an account on Twitter. Um, and he has a great blog post about the caveats and difficulties around polling. But there are some ways that we can attempt to measure and understand what's going on. And one of the ways in which I've been doing that is by attempting to monitor Russian social media and look at some of the more extreme nationalist groups and patriotic groups to see which way the wind is blowing with them. Because if you, would, if you were going to start to see cracks in these narratives, you would expect the cracks to perhaps appear there as they begin to discuss is, is this worthwhile, even though we're Putin's biggest supporters? And the answer is, those cracks are just not there. But people are reiterating these narratives around the war, word for word, symbol for symbol, image for image. And there is a, there is a huge group on VK, which is the Russian, uh, Russian Facebook equivalent, and that's one of the ones that's more or less owned by the government and certainly uh, very closely monitored, shall we say, by the Russian government. And in, in this group, which is called Polite People, there's about 400,000 members, and they discuss quite openly what's going on in the war and celebrate what's going on in the war. And what they've done is take the people that are dying in the war today and sort of draw them into this temporal space that I was talking about that belongs to this sort of heroic pantheon of martyrs. And so if you log on to groups like this, you will find people posting pictures that are sort of fan art type pictures of characters from the war today, of soldiers who died turned into orthodox style icons and you'll get little stories like a sort of a saint's life of the things that they've done to lay down their their lives for the greater good and so in these groups it seems as things are progressing they're actually getting more and more pro-war and, and are embracing these sacrifices as something that's almost a trial or a tribulation that seems essential in order to win the war today just as the war in 1941, 1945 required immense sacrifices in order to achieve victory. And this, 
this doesn't make sense from the outside again right because rationally you'd say we would want to win this war with as few bodies as possible being sacrificed and yet the russian myth of war in particular world war ii but even further back continually alludes back to sacrifices in order to save the nation sacrifices in order to save christianity and in order to defend against threats that come either from the east or the west so all of this is bound up with these sort of memories of national pasts and national identities and simply presenting to people who really buy into this stuff the numbers of people who are dying and the sacrifices that are being made in terms of living costs and economic sanctions is not going to work and when we turn our attention to the west think about and obviously this is this is somewhat different but think about things that were very emotive issues in the west like the trump election like brexit the brexit vote in britain wasn't won based on a rational argument it was won based on something that was emotional appealed to national spirit and in russia this national spirit is much more deeply ingrained and supported by the government Um, yeah, that I, it's it's quite interesting what you say about um, you know nationalists who who are supporting and sort of almost in some cases taking taking I guess the mythology further, um, and I think one and also what you say about you know how difficult it is really to gauge uh, support you know the, the polls very difficult um, and uh, of course. Um, Russia has essentially, um, you know, tried to try to squelch the independent media. So you know, you're getting less less sort of real information from that, uh, you know, from the media. Um, so that that's something that's 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 hard to gauge. If if I could ask you just another question that I hadn't um, planned on, but um, in terms of uh, were you surprised, I guess, that, I mean, maybe not that he, that Putin didn't mention, didn't declare war on Ukraine or didn't uh, um, announce a mobilization. Were you surprised sort of that he, uh, at anything that he, that he said or, or did not say? I mean, I mean no, do, you think, do you think it's sort of the way his speech went says anything about what, uh, I mean, you mentioned this before, but uh, about what the more war, how the war may, sh may shape up in, you know, kind of in the near future. I think, I think I'm not surprised that nothing, nothing really happened in a sense. And perhaps part of the way in which we can understand why is to turn our attention away from Red, Red Square. And I know that we're all, we're all terribly excited at looking the mil at military parades and looking at Putin. But you've got to understand as well that ordinary Russians really, really genuinely embrace this day. Victory Day is a genuinely popular day that people have very, very strong feelings about. And so you can look all over Russia today and you will find people who are going out to those immortal regiment parades that you will have seen where, you know, Russians parade the photos of their ancestors who fought in the war through the streets. And the immortal regiment was started in... 
2015, I think, as a grassroots thing. It was just a bunch of enthusiastic Russians. Later, it was co-opted by the government. And you will also find youth groups, some of which are run by the government more directly than others, out in the streets and out in the parks and out in schools, looking after veterans, visiting the elderly, tidying up the town and, you know, painting walls and doing, doing all sorts of stuff like that the Cub Scouts would do in, in the West. And so this is a day when Russians are really coming together and doing volunteer things and what they would think of as good things, and some of them are good things, right? There's nothing wrong with going and visiting Bolshka in the hospital or going and picking up litter in the local town. And so why use this day to create any kind of political statement or gesture that might cause any kind of fissure or disruption, uh, disruption or difficulty associated with the war in the present? Why not, if you were Putin, just go to Red Square, do the parade, do a cracking speech, wheel out the greatest hits as he did, let people get on with things, and if you really do need a general mobilisation, we'll do it in a week, now that everyone's kind of, you know, People are still feeling buoyant about Victory Day, but not feeling like this day that they see as a celebration be turned into something that might be a little bit more ominous. Yeah, absolutely. That's a that's a great point. Um, you know, I was thinking often during his press conferences or his kind of big set piece events that that Putin has had um, over the years and every year often the most important actual news that he makes is sometime after, you know, the, the set piece event. Uh, I mean, it could be the same day, um, but uh, it comes after. So, you know, again, there's something, as you mentioned, you know, maybe in a week. Uh, so kind of uh, the, the, the suspense, I guess, is still there and the, and the kind of um, feeling that, uh, gosh, what's going what's to happen next? You know, what can possibly happen next in this, this war? Um, so I will, um, we're, we're running out of time, but, uh, running short of time, but uh, let's take a few questions, um, uh, if, if there are any, um, and as I mentioned, um, listeners can request to speak if they have a question. Give it a few more moments here. Okay. Um, see a question from. Uh, oh, I thought there was a question from Muzaffar. Hello, my mic's on. May I ask? Yes, please go ahead. Thank you. Thanks for the insights. It's very interesting. I get your point about this being a celebration and not kind of ruin it with uh, additional um, fanfare or any additional escalation or so. But the speech that Putin held, isn't this some kind of very special opportunity that doesn't come a lot where he has a, the attention of the whole country, maybe of the whole world? So wouldn't this, this have been a very special opportunity that, the, that he will have a hard time recreating in a week from now or so? Yeah, you're right. It, it is a special opportunity. But what do you want to use that special opportunity for? 
maybe you want to use it to sort of play ball with your Chinese allies. Maybe you want to use it just to reinforce a few messages that you, you know, you, you know from your propagandists are going to work pretty well. Maybe if you think you've got something that might be perceived as bad news amongst the population, i.e. a general mobilization, and I'm not necessarily saying that that would be perceived as bad news, but if you did think that, why announce it on the big day? Surely you would use a smaller opportunity, you know, wait for something else to happen, distract everybody with some bad news elsewhere, and then, you know, drop it in on a Friday afternoon when nobody's looking, as governments in the West do all the time with slightly bad news announcements. Right, and I think the, um, you know, the, the thinking among some people is, well, uh, announcing a mobilization or, or declaring war would suggest, well, or make people ask, well, why, why are we, why now? Doesn't that just mean, you know, we've so far, you know, we've failed to, to achieve the objectives. And of course, at the beginning of the war, you know, it, it, I mean, it seems quite clear that Putin expected, probably expected, uh, essentially to, to win within several days and to either to achieve the goal either of um, kind of uh, bringing down um, Zelensky's government or, or at least getting it to, uh, to make major concessions about the Donbass, about NATO membership. And, and several other things. So, so I think, you know, if, if Putin's decided, well, I'm not going to do this today, you know, one reason may be, well, because it's going to, it would, it would suggest that maybe things aren't going as well uh, as, as I've said they are, because he's, he has said a few times that everything's going according to plan. Of course. And I think one of the, one of the weird things about this war is even today, on Victory Day, we still have no idea what the goals of the war really are, at what point Putin would be happy. Right? Where does, where does the conflict end? Is it full occupation of Ukraine? Is it a military occupation? Is it the change of government? Would he now be happy with just carving up Ukraine and having some sort of dual state Moldova-Transnistria situation? Really, we, we're clueless. It's all guesswork still. And so maybe it's just hard to announce because he doesn't know himself. Yeah, that, I mean, that, that certainly could be. And, and I, I would, I guess, note that at the same time, you know, we, we don't know what the, the goals are. And then, you know, we, we don't know whether any of them now is achievable. Any of the goals that Putin might have is achievable. Um, you know, the war has taken a turn that is not, you know, I don't think was expected by by too many people. So, you know, there's the question of, and then there's kind of the fear, I guess, and the question that, well, if if the minimum goal for Putin is to kind of control the Donbass, uh, and that looks like it's not going to happen, um then, then what? Then what? So, you know, that's kind of a, a concern and a, a question, I guess. Um, so, I'll just see if anyone else uh, has any questions. I'd like to respond to a few more if we can.
Again, you can raise your hand by requesting to be a speaker. Can you guys hear me? Uh, yes. Uh, okay. Um, sorry, I was as, uh, wondering if like um, Russia's attempt to what I see as unify the Russian speakers is like a derogation of um, Russia playing second fiddle to China. Like if I look at it from a Marxist perspective, then what I'm seeing is like a very powerful EU block forming and a powerful research in China. And I'm really wondering what the place of Russia is in that future. And is like them trying to get Ukraine one way or another, like an attempt to pull themselves out of the Chinese orbit. I think that's a really interesting question. And I'm maybe not the person to ask, but it certainly is interesting that so far the war if that was the intention, and I, I don't think it's unreasonable to suggest that that might be a possibility, so, that so far the war has gone so badly and the economic sanctions on Russia have been so strict that Russia seems to have been pulled further into China's orbit and become more subordinate to China's economic and probably military demands as well. But I, I do genuinely think that much of this is to do, as I've mentioned throughout this little talk much of this is to do with the spiritual dimension and the nationalist dimension rather than anything that's necessarily rational and one of the things that IR scholars are going to have to grapple with Ivan is um, is what what do you do to explain behavior like this that is completely inexplicable how do you chart and incorporate nations and leaders that are motivated purely by belief and somewhat flexible spiritual conviction rather than anything that seems to be data-driven. Yeah, and I'll just add, uh, I mean, I'm definitely not an expert um, on that either, um, uh, on the relationship with China. Um, but I think, I mean, I think part of it is that Russia, you know, wants a multipolar world but it wants one in which it's not, you know, too subordinate to China. Um, and I think that's part or one ingredient of, you know, in, in, in Putin's desire to, to control uh, Ukraine and uh, evidently Belarus um, and, and, as you mentioned, sort of uh, the, the Russian-speaking world. So I think, you know, having as much, I don't think it's, you know, m maybe not the main driving force, you know, as Ian's saying, there's a lot going on, but uh, but I think that's one of the one of the uh, things that that Putin is thinking about as well. I want a multipolar world. But I don't want my pole to be to be too uh, too small. Okay. Um, any other questions? Anyone want to uh, raise their hand? We'll just give it a few more moments.
Yes, uh, thanks for allowing me to speak. Um, my question now is that failing to um, uh, reaching or occupying Kiev and then failing to uh, declare victory uh, today in the May Parade, how, how do you see Putin's strategy? Uh, it seems to me that he will work on a, a continuous war of attrition, hopefully till the autumn or the winter, when the need for oil uh, and gas will be more, uh, and then hoping for extracting concession uh, from uh, the Western world, especially EU. Um, do, you, do you see that as a possibility? How would the EU react to endless drain and war in, in Ukraine that is not finishing and uh, causing instability, uh, especially in the economy and the stock market. Thank you very much. Okay, now maybe not the person to ask about the conduct of the, the strategic war and the war on the battlefield. But what I do want to see us get away from is the idea that somehow Putin's Putin has failed to declare victory on Victory Day. What I really want everybody to understand about Victory Day is that the day is not about the destination. The day is not about the arrival of victory. The day is about celebrating the path that was taken, i.e. the journey towards that destination. And that is a journey that required an enormous amount of sacrifice. Although the Russian war myth leaves out some of the embarrassing bits of the past like the you know the um, Molotov Molotov Ribbentrop pact and of course makes no mention of the terrible things that happened to Poles and the Volga Germans and other groups during the war it does harp on endlessly about the amount of Russian dead, about how terrible things were in the first 18 months of the war before Stalingrad and supposedly the non-stop march towards Berlin, although, of course, the death tolls were still very high on that march towards Berlin. And so when we think about propaganda and declaring victory, I think Putin can string this out for quite a long time as things go badly and as things people get frustrated at home with some of the sacrifices they're asked to make. If they really do, as I believe they do, believe that today is a war that is justified and does in some sense defend the world from a, a Nazi threat that is of course imaginary. Uh, I think that's a great answer uh, to, to a very good question and um, I will wrap it up there. I think we're uh, running out of time. Um, so uh, we'll uh, wrap it up. Uh, Ian, um, you know, Thanks very much for joining me. Those are great insights, um, and I hope to talk to you again soon. Perfect. Thank you for having me. All right. Great to have you. Uh, now, once again, I've been speaking to Ian Garner, expert on Russian war propaganda, whose forthcoming book, Stalingrad Lives, uh, explores how Soviet propagandists created a myth of the battle that has captured Soviet and Russian minds for 80 years. Uh, and Ian's now working on his second book, uh, about fascism and the future of Russia. Uh, and my name is Steve Gutterman, editor for Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus in the Central Newsroom at RFERL. As I mentioned at the start, this conversation will also be published as a podcast, and you, you can subscribe uh, to The Week Ahead in Russia, other RFERL podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, I'll be uh, back again next Monday. And please keep an eye out on Friday for my newsletter, The Week in Russia. Thanks very much for listening.